I lived in this almost, you know, schizophrenic world where by day I was surrounded by enormous wealth and privilege at the private school I went to. And then when I would go home, you know, it was a little bit more of a working class neighborhood. And I could see that, look, the people in my neighborhood were every bit as smart, every bit as capable as some of the privileged people. What they lacked was opportunity. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have Jean Case, a prolific executive, investor, philanthropist, and impact investing pioneer. She is the chairman of the National Geographic Society and CEO of the Case Foundation, which has been recognized for addressing significant social challenges and driving exponential impact. Jean is also the author of her latest book, Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose, which is based on the Case Foundation's principles for bringing about transformational change in organizations and individuals. Jean is dedicated to social impact, and she and her husband, Steve Case, joined the Giving Pledge and publicly have reaffirmed their commitment to give away the majority of their wealth to fund worthy charitable causes. In today's episode, Jean talks to us about how to take big bets, how to step outside of your comfort zone, and analyze what it really takes to create a big vision and an extraordinary, fearless life. Jean, welcome to the show, and congrats on the release of your new book. Thanks, Lisa. I've really been looking forward to being with you. I love that this book is predicated around the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Because I think sometimes the scariest thing is just admitting what you want and imagining that it might even be possible. Mm -hmm. uh, shattering that illusion of safety, or as you say in the book, leaving the cocoon of normal. Yeah, that's right. So to start off, tell me why is being fearless so important to you? Sure. Well, let me talk a, a little bit about how we even got to these five principles. You know, in my work through the decades, I've had the opportunity to travel to communities around the United States and around the world. And I see some really common things. Specifically, I see that everywhere I go, people have ideas about great things they might do or how to make the world a better place. But the other common thing I see is you know, sometimes a belief that I can't be that one. Um, and so, you know, I kind of became animated and our team at the Case Foundation did too, around why do some people break through, you know, find the courage to move forward with their ideas while others don't. And then for those that do move forward and find success, what does that look like? So we did some research on the core qualities of change makers and entrepreneurs and innovators that have broken through. And it was out of that research that it became clear. It really is just these five simple principles that are present wherever transformational breakthrough takes place. But the better news in my mind is that we were able to debunk this idea that it takes something super special, whether that's genius or just the right school or wealth and connections, and also debunk the idea that really successful people didn't encounter fear or failure along the way. So that's why you know, we've been 
kind of teaching these principles out and about for some number of years now, and I heard time and time again how they really influenced people's lives and sometimes gave them the courage to kind of get started, almost like a playbook, to take their idea forward. Um, so that's why I'm really passionate about this Be Fearless work, because we've seen sort of how it's really moved people to action in really mm -hmm. cool ways. So can you tell us what those five principles are? Sure, I'll go through them really quickly and then maybe we can sure. talk about them. And I, and I should point out, while, it is, while the book is premised on the five principles, as you know, we tried to bring them to life through storytelling, mm -hmm. talking about how people actually applied the principles as they were climbing towards success or breakthroughs. So the first is make a big bet and make history. And the idea is if you examine the life of someone who's done something extraordinary, it almost always involves a really big idea, a big bet. Now, we recognize and we're quick to say how you get to a big bet is an incremental process, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> a little bit at a time, but always keeping sort of a, a high aim in your endeavors to be transformational. The second is be bold and take risks. You know this, Lisa, yes. and I know that many <laughs> of your listeners do as well. It's hard to achieve breakthrough things without trying some new things, experimenting and taking some risks. And people get really uncomfortable with that risk word, and we can talk more about it. But the bottom line is, if you're going to try to innovate, you must take risks. Uh, the third is make failure matter. And just like you must take risks, you know, the process of R&D, which we understand pretty well in medicine and science and tech, it applies really to any form of innovation or pushing forward with new ideas. And that is, if you're trying new things, you're probably not going to bat a thousand. Chances are you might have some failures along the way. You need to embrace those failures. Embrace those failures. Learn from them. Make it matter, okay? Push past them. And, and there, I do want to say one of my favorite chapters in the book is called Fail in the Footsteps of Giants. I love that, yeah. Yeah, because my concern is too often, you know, people's stories of success get sanitized and sort of the, the you know, messages about what didn't go right are often lost. So what I've found is when I tell these stories out and about, and particularly true with younger people, but true of all ages, uh, some of the failures very successful people have had, you know, suddenly it starts to make people feel a little more comfortable. Okay, well, maybe it's not the end of the world if I fail along my journey. And um, I think that with, um, especially with social media these days, yeah, it's people are always comparing the, the highlight reel of other people with, you know, they're behind the scenes and it's always, you know, everyone else is more successful and I'll focus on my own failures. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, social media really, I think, plays into that where we only put our best selves out there too often, right? Or the mm -hmm. best parts of our lives. Um, so the next principle is called reach beyond your bubble. And the idea there really is to build unlikely partnerships. And uh, those might be partnerships for your business. Those might be relationships that you have with other people who can you know provide a perspective or what I call cover your blind spots that you may not even be aware you have and what we've seen time and time again is that diverse teams made up of people with different backgrounds different perspectives different points of view on things uh, often outperform and I put a lot of data in the book about that and that sort of feels like a duh thing to me. Yeah. But um, I think I didn't really realize it was part of the secret sauce of success. Um, yeah. And then the last uh, principle is let urgency conquer fear. I think that was my favorite. It's my favorite too, Lisa. <laughs> um, and I think because we instinctually know that sometimes when that 
we feel that sense of urgency, it can push us out of our comfort zone and get us to do some of the things. If we see a real need, if we see a desperate situation, if we, you know, and I even like I laugh because I tell the story of Airbnb and how it got started. And really, at the end of the day, that company got started because two guys in San Francisco couldn't make the rent. Yeah. So they had to innovatively think about how use how they would use what they have. And what they had was an apartment floor, and they rented out air mattresses, and mm-hmm. thus Airbnb was born. So we see this all around us, where this sense of urgency, whether you know you passionately care about changing something, or whether you just have a need or a solution you're trying to bring, it it can uh, lead you to great ideas and to action. Yeah, and and on that part of urgency. Um, how does one create urgency in their life when it doesn't feel life-threatening? Because there's so many people who do live in that gray zone of wanting to do something, mm-hmm. but just not, and then years pass. Yeah. Well, I would say, um, you know, one of the things I point out in the book is nothing great comes out of the comfort zone. So I think if you have ideas and you're just very comfortable, thank you very much, you're probably not in a good position to really make something of the idea of the solution you're taking forward. You know, you're really going to have to get to a place where you realize there is either a time-sensitive need to get out there or a need to do some things you haven't done before to push yourself out of that comfort zone. Yeah. Um, And so for, for then, when people think of that urgency, I also liked how you talked about the long view and taking the long view (laughs) in life and... um, and all around this initial question that you asked in the book, which was about those who want an extraordinary life. And if you're taking the long view on wanting that extraordinary life, that it is really important to, to find that urgency. That's right. I mean, and it's sort of tied a little bit to what we said about how we know when you're striving for something significant, not everything's going to go right each step of the way. And if you keep the long view, I think it's another way you can push past sort of short-term, you know, things that go wrong as they happen. And, of course, I tell a couple of really wonderful stories in the book that I love. One is of my friend Ted Leonsis, who owns the Washington Capitals. Ted and I first came to know each other when we bought his company. I was a senior executive at AOL, and we bought his company that he had started. And so he became a colleague at AOL. But about almost 20 years ago, he bought the Washington Capitals hockey team with one singular purpose in mind, and that was to bring the Stanley Cup to Washington, D.C., you know, the Mm -hmm. highest achievement of hockey. So, you know, if you watch what Ted did, he really did everything right. He knew he had to rebuild the team. He brought in great talent. He filled the arena like you've never seen it. I think it still has the record for the most number of, you know, sold out, et cetera. But each time he, you know, they'd lose in the playoffs, early in the playoffs, early. It took him 19 years. But last year in 2018, he won the Stanley Cup. And he talks about the fact that it was so much sweeter because climbing that mountain had been filled with so many, you know, tough moments along the way. And, you know, when we were growing AOL, I joined AOL when it was just a startup. And when we knew we wanted to build a meaningful service and democratize access to ideas and information and communication, we later said it found great success at its peak. It uh, carried 50% of the nation's internet traffic. And later we said we were a 10-year overnight sensation. 
And what I mean by that is the first 10 years of that company were a slog. We had layoffs, we, you know, we had moments of near death, etc. But I think we all knew we had to take the long view if we were really going to revolutionize or you know, make this internet revolution real and, and go to the masses. And I just think it's, you know, really important to keep your eye on sort of that long view. Yeah. And I had that experience as a, as a gymnast when I kept my eye on the 10-year Olympic prize. Yeah. So that probably kept you going in your moments of defeat and, yeah. right? And, and those moments could be years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing I learned at AOL, we were the first internet company to go public. And when you go from being a private company to a public company, suddenly the world wants you to report quarter by quarter, you know, what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you've got to have, you know, quarterly earnings that keep the investors happy. And I saw a shift in how we thought about innovation because we were less willing, I think, to take some of the risk and do some of the bold things because we didn't want to compromise this quarter's earnings. Right. And so there's a movement going on, even with companies like a long term stock market. Um, Larry Fink, who, you know, runs the largest asset company in the world, has talked about, you know, this idea of needing more CEOs and entrepreneurs to take a long view as as they take their idea forward, because Mm -hmm. If you don't have the long view in mind, it'll be too easy to compromise the risk-taking along the way that leads to more innovation. Yeah, and one of the things that I think about when you talk about taking the long view is that it's also really hard for people to figure out what the long view is in the first place, like what it is they want. Yeah, and but that's pretty important. That's back to that big bet, right, Lisa? Yeah. And And like, you know, anyone can have an idea, but I think really having a sense of what it is you're out there to achieve or transform or break through with. If, if, if that isn't clear in a really big way, then that's most likely not going to be mm-hmm. a successful big bet. But you know, the other thing you probably saw uh, in, in that principle, I wrote about Milton Hershey. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us love Hershey Kisses, right? I love a Hershey bar. But what we don't know is how that amazing company uh, was built. And it was over 100 years ago that he wanted to become a confectioner, you know, make candy. So at the age of 14, he became, he didn't come from means. His father had abandoned uh, the family and he became an apprentice to a candy maker. So then he started his own, his first own candy company and that failed in three years. So he went to another town and did some more apprentice and started another one and that failed after a few years. Then he ended up in Philadelphia and New York with two more failures. So now he's in his early 40s, and his family back in Pennsylvania is going to have a family reunion. They don't want him to come. They think Mm -hmm. he's a loser and a drifter at this point. But thankfully, his mom and his aunt still believed in him. (laughs) And I think his aunt loaned him something like $50 or $100. And he started a a caramel company that predated Hershey that was phenomenally successful. And he took the earnings from that and poured it into creating the Hershey Company. Well, today we don't just love Hershey and celebrate it because it's got great chocolate. He also started a school. He took everything made from Hershey and gave it to a, a school that provided for underprivileged kids. And today that school has an endowment of $12 billion. Mm-hmm. So it's just a great life story of people counted him out each step along the way, but he didn't count himself out. And that's really what I want to say to your listeners and particularly to women. You know, the world might count you out. Others might. Don't be the one to count yourself out. Like, stay in the game. Keep that long view. Yeah, and um, 
uh, when one of the things that you had said also in the book was about how to leverage your um, the disenfranchised, how the disenfranchised yes. have yes. that 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 sensation that you you need to prove something. Yes, yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about that because obviously what you're referring to. So I was born in a really small town in Illinois called Normal. Of I was all from places. the Midwest as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Where Madison? And oh, then I great town. Moved to suburbs of. Of Chicago. Oh, cool. So another Illinois yeah. girl, too. All right. So, um, but I was the youngest of four children being raised by a single mom. And so we, you know, faced some challenges along the way. And I actually was the recipient of philanthropy. I was on a, a full scholarship at a private school. And, you know, there were just too many times, both in my early life and then particularly particularly as I went through the technology um, career that I had for 20 years, where I would look around and there was no one like me, you know, no one else on scholarship. I ended up not finishing college because my career took off. No one else without a college degree. Too often I've been the only woman in the room, certainly at the board table. Um, and so, yeah, I think we can sort of, if we let it, we can let that, you know, stop us or make us feel insecure. Or we can say, you know, I'm going to prove them wrong and I'm going to show what can be done here. But I, I would caution people, and I think most women feel this way, that, that if you're not careful, what can happen is you feel almost too much pressure, like you represent a class instead of just you trying mm -hmm. to be out there doing something. Like if you fail as a woman, does that mean women fail, the right? Pressure of the exactly. Entire Man, you got to just get over that. It's been hard for me too. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easy, uh, but you got to dig deep and say, no, actually, I'm going to use that to motivate me to be great. Yeah. Um, so tell me about leaving that cocoon of normal and you know we've been talking about making the big bet and knowing what you want uh, I think for especially people who are early on in their career mm -hmm. and thinking about a few different things that they want yeah um, can you tell us about your career trajectory? sure well I wrote a little bit about even before my sort of career started that I felt like I was fortunate to have what I call almost a true north a sense of what really mattered to me. And in my life, because I lived in this almost, you know, schizophrenic world where by day I was surrounded by enormous wealth and privilege at the private school I went to. And then when I would go home, you know, it was a little bit more of a working class neighborhood. And I could see that, look, the people in my neighborhood were every bit as smart, every bit as capable as some of the privileged people that I, you know, had a lot of contact with. What they lacked was opportunity. And I could see the opportunities were coming to me because somebody was generous in empowering me. Um, so I really committed my life. I wanted to use my time and my resources to empower others. And so at first I thought I was going to be a lawyer in the public sector, came to Washington working for President Reagan. And then when that job, when they lost funding for that job for a brief period of time, I jumped over and took a temporary assignment at a technology company and thus began what really was an extraordinary career in tech. Um, and, you know, there what I really wanted was to see uh, online services or what we know today as the Internet to be ubiquitous so they could empower people everywhere. You know, I tell the story in the book of my mom spent months paying, actually two years paying for a set of hardbound encyclopedias because that's how we used to use encyclopedias. And I was blown away when I saw the first online encyclopedia and realized the power that could give to people 
you know, in the old days, to buy a set of encyclopedias was like $450, you know, so kids like me didn't have them. Um, so I could see the really empowering nature of the internet and uh, knew I wanted to spend my career doing that. Yeah, and the, the idea of risk as part of that, because you talk about all of these changes, <laughs> you actually said that you've been uncomfortable with risk most of your life. I have. And you still struggle with being fearless. Can you tell me about the evolution? Sure, sure. Well, you know, if you looked at my life maybe from the outside in, it wouldn't necessarily be clear that I struggled with risk because I did take a lot of risks along the way. And I write about many of them in the book. Um, but I also tell a story of in my early 40s, I did this kind of outward bound like experience where you had to climb this telephone pole and then walk across a telephone pole 30 feet in the air. Now, I was belayed, so had I fallen, I would be caught. Yeah. Um, but that didn't, I mean, it, you still have your mind that, you know, has to sort of take that first step out there. So anyway, I really had a bit of a crisis at the top of the pole when I had to step out and walk across someone across. And I, you know, kind of through tears said to the uh, guy down on the ground, I just don't think I can do this. And she said, really, Jean? Well, you can try. And there was something about her saying something as simple as you could try that sort of gave me the courage to take that first step and finish it. And when we came down to the ground, she said, look, are you someone who's mostly done things in your life you're sure you could be good at? And it like blew me away because no one ever asked that question. Like your comfort and, zone. Yes. And when I thought about it, I thought, you know, that I really have. And I realized I'd grown more so as I as I got older. So I made a list that day of things I really believed I could not do. And I set out to do them. And it was stunning to me the success that I had. So one example is I'd never done martial arts. I was always fascinated by it. Um, and I, you know, said I was going to get my black belt in Taekwondo. Well, I did. Okay, but I, looking at myself in that day, I said that would never happen to mm -hmm. me. So what I would say to your listeners is, you know, sometimes you can work risk a little bit like comfort with risk, a little bit like a muscle. Like there are small things you can do in your life to prove you can do things mm -hmm. you don't know you'll be good at, right? Yeah. And sometimes that helps your confidence on the bigger things you have to undertake that you might not feel you'll be good at. Yeah, it's funny when you talk about that story because I immediately thought of, I went to this virtual reality, <laughs> um, is a, a like entertainment center, and uh, one of the VR installations was to walk down a pole, and you're walking on a flat. I, I think you're walking like a, on a raised uh, pole on the yeah, ground. Uh -huh. Exactly. So it's just a raised beam on the uh -huh. ground, and. It was so scary. And even then, I knew. Yeah. Because your mind was telling you cause, something cause else. Because in my mind, it, you know, in the VR, it was, um, there's a huge drop. Yes. And actually, you if you fall off, you actually do drop and you feel that moment yes. and that sensation. And it just, it was crazy to me that, like, how much your brain can trick you even when you know that you're safe. So, Lisa, I'm so glad you said that because before I went 30 feet in the air on the pole, they have you do exactly what you did. They have you walk across a pole on the ground that's about a foot. And, of course, you sail across it because you're a foot off the ground, yeah. right? You're seeing everything. But... Uh, you know, then your mind does numbers on you. So I saw something, and I don't even know who to uh, attribute this to, um, that one way of defining fear is false evidence appearing real. Mm. 
And I do think if we can think about that, you know, as we go through our lives when we face fear, say, look, what's real here and what am I imagining? Because that's what we're talking about. You and I were both imagining some, you know, the worst or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, was sort of false evidence in front of us. We could do it. Yeah. And we had to really recognize what was real and what wasn't. Yeah. And and I often think about subjective realities mm-hmm. um, because, especially now with with business, I mean, it's always been like this, but more so than ever, every single thing you do is almost interconnected Yeah. because of how quickly information spreads. Yeah, that's true. And it's so easy to react to other people who insert their reality into yours. Yeah, it's true. And, and to let it, and it to be a wavelength to knock you off a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, we haven't talked that much about you know, risk itself. And one of the questions I get all the time when, when I teach these principles is, you know, are you talking about like I should quit my job and just like, you know, go? And, you know, I do tell a story of a, of a, of a young woman who did just that. She quit her job. She was very passionate when she heard Muhammad Yunus talk about microfinance as a new movement, which is giving small loans to very small businesses around really the poor around the world. So she quit her job, went to Africa with nothing but a camera, and Kiva was born. Mm. And if you've never heard of Kiva, Kiva gives small loans as little as $25, I'm sorry, the $25 donations to create small loans of maybe a thousand, somewhere between a thousand and five thousand dollars to uh, poor people around the world who have businesses. And so anyway, she you know found great success, and to date, over a billion dollars in small loans have been wow. provided through Kiva. So there are those stories of some people who just quit their jobs and go. But what I try to draw out in the in the risk section of the book, and if you're sitting there thinking I can't do that, is really how the first chapter in the book is called "Start Right Where You Are." And the idea is you might be able to take some smaller risks to move your idea forward right now, no matter how many jobs you're working, no matter how many stressors you have. I mean, I, I just give thanks every day that I had this remarkable mom who was raising four kids alone and could still get up every day and do what she needed to do and model, you know, with a, with a smile on her face. And so, you know, the whole idea of risk is know the difference between reckless risk in your life and measured risk. And sometimes to take a big idea forward, it might take reckless risk, but usually it starts with small measured risks that you can take um, in those early phases to take your idea forward. Yeah, and the, the great quote that you wrote in there was, um, to give people the challenge to start right where you are, and that's the great equalizer. It really is. And, of course, the story of the woman I tell in the opening of the book, which is Start Right Where You Are, was a sole practitioner, mental health counselor, who saw that um, our soldiers and their families, there wasn't enough capacity for mental health um, counseling as the wars were raging. So she started giving one hour a week, and then she had a great idea. What if I create a national network of doctors? So by herself, she didn't even have like an assistant. She just had like one office. She was doing it all by herself. And she created this national network of doctors under a new organization called Given Hour. And thousands and thousands of doctors around the world joined in. And to date, they've provided over $25 million in mental health services for veterans and their families. She went on to be named Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World. So um, it's a great example of you would look at her life. She didn't have an MBA. She knew nothing about organizational you know, forming or running or, and yet look at what she was able to do. 
Yeah, it seems like the common thread or even the question underlying all those who are getting started is, what if I, or what what would be possible if, and there's that if word right. um, that opens up the imagination. That's right, that's right. And sometimes, I mean, in fairness, sometimes what may seem like a big bet to you right now, um, you know, might not be the really big bet ultimately that you're going to take forward. You might even expand your bet further as, you know, you find success going forward. And I, I talk about that with some of the examples in the book. Yeah. And one thing I want to touch on, um, because you've gone through you know, such an illustrious career already, um, but being a woman mm-hmm. you know, in the early days yeah. uh, at AOL, tell me about that experience. Well, it w- you know, I was in technology long before AOL, <laughs> okay. Um, it, I was, I don't know, gosh, probably already in tech five or seven years before I landed at AOL. And, um, you know, it wasn't the bro culture that we, we see today in technology. I'm not saying it was that women didn't have their challenges. You know, we all did. But um, it was nothing like the tech culture that we see today. And I write a little bit about why I think that was the case back then. You know, because back then we sort of all needed each other. It was a little bit of the Wild Mm -hmm. West. There was not a rule book yet. And uh, more importantly, people from a lot of diverse backgrounds were working in the field at that time. So it wasn't just gender diversity, but all kinds of people came together to work in tech. Today, tech is pretty much defined by young white men from elite schools. And, um, and, you know, there was almost a, a safety and we all needed each other in those early days. That's not so much true anymore. And it's another reason that I think, you know, staying really focused on making sure you have a diverse mix uh, as you build a company to make you stronger, but also to create a better culture in what you're doing. Yeah. And one of the things that, uh, that it's always resonates with me is especially in today's age of information, ignorance is a choice. And I think that data is all there, right? right? It's, it's, you don't need to look any further. And when people say show us the numbers, we've shown the numbers. And, um, and one thing that you talked about was to not make the assumption that as a number of women in high level jobs increases, that that upward trajectory is a given. Yeah. Um, So what do you think going forward in terms of your view of uh, what what's possible? You know, one thing I really haven't talked about and, and didn't really talk about it in the book too much is, you know, one constant was I was harassed in every job I had, mm. sexually harassed, the kind of stuff that Me Too is talking about right now. Yeah. And I'm deeply saddened that so many women today are still experiencing the same thing. I would have thought that was different would be different by now. And, and for people in my generation, we sort of feel like we failed the next generation mm-hmm. of women because they're still having to deal with it. But I'm very optimistic with both Time's Up and Me Too that people are starting to recognize we need different cultures for women at work. We need to keep them safe. We need, you know, and I think women are feeling newly empowered. And I think that's going to have to play a really positive role in bringing more women into lots of different kinds of positions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the last thing I just want to leave this with is something you said, which is that sometimes a breakthrough can happen when a single woman raises her voice high enough to set things in motion. That's right. And it seems like you, you know, you've done that, and I really admire what you've oh, done. Oh, that's nice, Lisa. But I will hold up all the women in the book, and as I made clear, there's a bunch <laughs> yeah. of them. There are men too, but there are yeah. a lot of really fearless women. And the last thing is what I'd call the one thing, and just some of your one things. Uh, that you can answer in a quick second. Sure. Um, so what is one book you unhesitatingly recommend that isn't your own? 
uh, Anne Morrow Lindbergh's Gift of the Sea. Why is that? Uh, she was a female aviator, married to Charles Lindbergh, uh, you know, honored herself for her fearless efforts across the world. There, the world knew they, at the peak of their success, their child was kidnapped and she had to survive that. They, the child was never returned to them. But she would go to this beach in Florida that I've enjoyed and she, would, she wrote this book. And she, um, it's, it's a book that no matter where you are in life, if you're a woman, you're gonna find something that, uh, that speaks to you in that book. What is one thing that's left on your fear list? On my fear that I still have fear yeah. of? Oh, gosh, I every day I have fears. <laughs> and I should have said right at the outset that we don't define fearless as the lack of fear, but rather yeah. the ability to stare fear in the eye and, yeah. and keep moving forward. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I started flying lessons when mm. I was in college, but I never finished them. And I have a little bit of a fear of doing that, which makes me think I might be doing flying lessons again sometimes. <laughs> and the last thing is to make this podcast as actionable as possible. What is one thing that our listeners could do right after this podcast, one micro action? Well, obviously, I'd love it if they'd let the stories of the book inspire them. So read the book. Um, start right where you are. Figure out what you have right now that you can use um, to take your idea forward just a little bit. And as we talked, you know, if you have this idea but you're not really sure, spend time. I mean, use your calendar and really dedicate some time to asking the question, how much did I move the needle this week? How much closer am I to where I want to get to? And do one thing each week if that's all you can do right now. Great. Thank you so much, Jean. Thanks, Lisa. It's been fun to be with you. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.